Big Five Global on Dubai Eye 103.8. Hello and welcome to this, your final episode of the Big Five Global podcast. Wow, it is slightly hard to believe that this is our final episode. Uh, What a journey it has been. Now, I'm Georgia Tolley, and over the next 20 minutes, we will be continuing our conversations about all things construction, literally from every element, all the way from architecture and design, all the way through to completion. We've also talked about the metaverse. We've talked about the impact of Twin Cities, and it's all been part of our build-up, of course, to that Big Five global event, which is taking place right here in Dubai from December the 4th until December the 7th. Now, last time around, as I'm sure you heard, we had a fascinating discussion on why construction needs to be taught at school and what the sector needs to do to attract the next generation of eco-friendly builders and designers. Now, let's kick off this final episode by talking about law, specifically, of course, construction law, because it really does feel like in so many of the conversations we've had so far in this podcast series, that the subject of contracts and litigation has come up again and again. And that is one of the reasons why we asked leading construction lawyer Mark Raymond, a partner at the law firm Pinsent Masons, to join us on this final episode of the Big Five Global Podcast. To give us an assessment of the legal system when it comes to construction in the UAE and the wider region. The construction law that applies here is that there is a construction section of the civil code and that's been in place for many, many years. So the principles have been very much in place. It's really, I guess, has the way in which they've been applied or interpreted changed over the years? The answer is no. The issues, the challenges, the disputes that arise are very similar to the kind of disputes that uh, have been arising over the last 20, 30 years. It's all around time and, and, and cost and who pays who, who's at fault. Um, and so I don't think the principles have particularly changed. I think the thing, what has changed, um, and there's been some recent developments, is the mechanisms that the governments of the uh, UAE have been encouraging parties to use in order to resolve those disputes. So I think that 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 certainly has changed. Um, We had a a mediation law, for example, a a couple of years back. And as a result of that, some of the institutions who are responsible for resolving the disputes, the arbitration institutions and the courts have introduced ways of mediating and conciliating between the parties. So they can try and avoid the situation where you've got to go to court, you've got to go to arbitration in order to protect your rights or obtain money. So I think that probably has changed, but construction industry is fundamentally conservative, very reluctant to change. And and I think that that's reflected in, in some of the issues that we still see, see today, which I was seeing when I first started doing construction disputes 30 odd years ago. There does seem to be quite a lot of disputes in the construction sector. If you had to sort of drill it down to three main reasons for why we do see so many disputes, would you be able to uh, pinpoint those for me? I mean, the starting point is is the nature of the industry itself. The, the more complicated the project, the more likely that things are to go wrong and therefore it's the nature of the beast. And we just have to look around Dubai skyline to see some of the really fascinating, interesting architectural works and buildings, but also looking at 
down the road in Abu Dhabi, the oil and gas industry, the more sophisticated ways in which hydrocarbons are are developed and extracted and the pressure of petrochemical um, industry and processing facilities are becoming much more sophisticated. As a result of that, inevitably, you know, you will have problems because the, of the complexity of design, the, the development of new technologies. We see the renewables, for example, we have solar farms, wind farms, and so forth. And, and it's just inevitable as you get new technologies and more sophisticated and complex and clever ways of of exploiting uh, exploiting minerals, etc., and also more exciting and interesting ways of building buildings. So the Museum of the Future is a classic example of that. Things will certainly go wrong. So that, that's probably the first point. The second point, uh, reason for disputes, is, is the way in which the parties contract with each other. And that hasn't really changed over the last 20-odd years. We're still using the same forms of contract. Now, you'd have thought that that the, the industry and the participants would have worked out contractually how best to avoid disputes or resolve them. And, and to a certain extent, they have, but we still see the same problems arising. And I'm sure you'll have heard about the way in which the contracts are put together, uh, the way in which risk is allocated. In the Middle East, it all is not done in a, in a way that perhaps encourages collaboration um, as opposed to the confrontation that we see leading to disputes. So the way in which the contracts are put together, our second, second reason. I guess the final point, which is not unique to the, the Middle East or to the um, to Dubai, but it's the way in which the financial arrangements are put in place. And, and what I mean by that is that when you're building something, contractors will give a bond to guarantee their performance and also guarantee the payments that have been received at the start of the project, the advance payments to make sure that if anything goes wrong, the owner has a way of, of getting the money back or ensuring that they're not left out of pocket. And to buy those tend to be on-demand bonds, on first written demand. So you don't have to prove any wrongdoing. And as a consequence of that, it introduces an imbalance in the relationship between the owner and the contractor. The owner always has a big stick that can beat up the contractor. If things go wrong, can threaten to call the bond. And the consequence are twofold. One is it makes the work more expensive because the banks have to provide the bonds. And that is an expensive business here for various reasons, historic reasons. And secondly, it means that when you do have disputes, it seems to me, and in my experience, there is a where a party feels that it has the upper hand contractually or because it's got the bonding arrangement and they can make demands on them, seems more reluctant to, to negotiate when disputes start to arise. So I think those are the three main areas I've seen over the last 10, 15 years that I've been resolving construction disputes in, in, in Dubai. We've heard various suggestions during our podcast series of solutions to these dispute situations. Uh, one of them was, as someone who's involved in project management, said that maybe we needed our project managers to be more skilled, maybe they needed to uh, be trained up. The other one was a suggestion that one of the major reasons for contractual disputes was projects overrunning, and that's because it was unrealistic at the start. And then another reason was that potentially what we needed is more digital twins, because then everyone would be able to understand how things were working right from the start. And you know, if you had a change in construction company or a change in architecture or a change in anything, that people knew where they were going. So I've heard those three suggestions for different ways in which we can reduce the amount of dispute. I'm sure you've got your own suggestions as well. 
as a, as a construction dispute specialist, are actually rather counterintuitively much happier if parties, clients can resolve their disputes without spending loads of money on legal fees and spending loads of time in arbitration or litigation. So, you know, I, I've looked at, and my, my colleagues, some masons have looked at various different ways of resolving disputes. And that's not just here in the Middle East, but across our network. And, and what we can see is that there are certain things that have been introduced in other jurisdictions, which seem to have been very effective ways of at least reducing the level of disputes. And I guess one of them, which has been particularly effective in the UK, is the adjudication process. Now, without getting into too much detail, what, what that basically means is the government introduced a process where which basically required the parties to, when they had a dispute, to embark on what was a very rapid way uh, of determining it by a third party. Now, it was a temporary fix. The dispute would be referred to the third party, it would be resolved in 30 days, 60 days, very short period of time. But most importantly, money would flow. Whereas here, if you want to be paid, generally speaking, unless you can agree with the other side, if you haven't been paid or there's some problem with the, with the works or whatever, you have to go to court or you have to go to arbitration. And as you know, that can take many years. In the UK, the adjudication process meant that uh, there would be a decision made very very quick, and some would say not particularly just because it's very difficult to do to go into details, but at a relatively high level, decision would be made as to whether a payment should be made or who was at fault, and the payment would have to be made within that time. So cash flow, which is the lifeblood of all construction companies, flowed rather than problems of building up, accumulating until the end of a project, so that effectively a contractor may be in the position where it's not actually getting paid or is suffering significant losses, which in its own way will make their the chances of resolving things without pay, being paid more difficult. But in the UK, it meant that the parties would temporarily fix the issue, money would be paid over. If they didn't agree with the third party decision, then they could put a notice of dis, uh, disagreement and it would be resolved by arbitration or court whatever, at the end of the project. But it, what it meant was work could continue because monies would be passing and you wouldn't be building up all the issues, sort of having a, a big row at the end of the contract, which is generally the way things work here. Now, it seemed to me that was revolutionary when that was introduced in the UK. That, and this is a stat which is quite interesting. It reduced the number of arbitrations and court cases by around 90%. And that is, you know, as it is a significant, you know, reduction in formal disputes. You're always going to have disputes on a construction project for the reasons I've given. But what you were looking for is a way of resolving those disputes or finding a way to make sure they didn't affect progress or cash flow, as I've said. Now, that adjudication method was, as I said, revolutionary. A lot of resistance in the industry because it's very conservative, you know, both here and then in the UK but had a fundamental effect on the extent to which disputes moved from being areas where the parties might be able to reach agreement to entrenched positions, the confrontation I was talking about a bit earlier. Now, we don't have that here. As I said, if you want to get paid or you have a, a, a beef against the other party and you can't resolve it, then generally speaking, you have to go to court um, or arbitration. I know they looked at doing this in Qatar, adjudication process, and I think it's been looked at here. 
However, we haven't quite got there yet. As I said a bit earlier, what you do have is the developments in relation to mediation and conciliation, bringing the parties together by third party to try and resolve the disputes. But at the end of that process, there's nothing that requires a party to, to make a payment or accept that they're in the wrong, which is what adjudication does allow. You have to pay up. You can go and challenge it a bit later on, but you move on. And parties can take the decision as to, well, if do I want to continue with this dispute? I've been told I'm in the wrong. I've had to make this payment. I spent time and money on lawyers already, but it was a short process. Do I want to repeat all of that or just put it down to experience, see which way the wind's blowing, let's move on. Now, that was one of the big advantages education in the UK and I suggest that provided a convenient mechanism to overcome some of the challenges that we face here but I think it would change it would need a change of mindset you said at the beginning about whether construction law changes it's a very constructive conservative industry I think we'd have to you know we'd have to change mindsets not just of the government because they need to introduce the legislation but also the participants in the industry the owners and developers the tractors and suppliers and so forth i think it would certainly be welcomed by the supply chain but at, at the moment obviously as i said we haven't got it we have some steps and to be interesting you know that this various um, consultations going on, for example, the DIFC about their new mediation uh, plans, but we're still a little way to go yet. That was the voice of Mark Raymond, a partner at the law firm Pinsent Masons. Now, I'm sure that any construction expert would agree that the secret to a successful project is a talented, engaged and enthusiastic project manager. But how can you be sure that the person you're getting is skilled to the very highest level, experienced in using the latest tech, for example. Well, for our last interview of this podcast series, I'm delighted to be joined here in our Big Five Global studio by Rachel Keeble, who is the founder and lead instructor at Builtwell Project Management. Rachel, thank you so much for joining us in the studio. Good to have you here. Thank you for having me. Absolute pleasure. First up, I'd like to talk about this need to reskill and upskill people in the construction industry. How urgent is this need? The need is pretty urgent. The industry is absolutely fascinating and completely blossoming at the moment. The problem that we have is that we are not retaining our people. So we have a massive skills gap that the industry is facing and we need excellent people to be able to fill that skills gap. There are some amazing global initiatives happening to get people into construction, but we're not actually doing that good a job at looking after them throughout their careers, throughout the span of their careers. Why is that? That's really interesting. Do you think it's different to other sectors? The statistics show that it is different to other sectors. So normally in other sectors, you kind of have about a 30 to 40% turnover of retention. In the construction industry, it can be up to about 65%. So we are losing people and we're not retaining our workforce as much as other industries out there. I'm trying to think of all the different types of jobs that people do in construction. And and they're so different that, that you kind of, it's quite hard to make parallels. But For example, if you're actually working on a construction site, I can imagine that that's quite arduous, quite tiring, uh, quite ageing in many ways. So that might be a young man or a young woman's game and you might want to make that transition. 
But if you're a project manager or you're off your offsite, I don't quite understand what it is that would make people leave the industry. Well, it's a high stress industry. You know, the stakes are high on sites and there is a lot of pressure. You know, it is for, for actually a slow moving industry. We get through a lot of work, especially in this region. And, you know, there are problems that the industry faces more widely. So there's a there is that skills gap that we talked about. There's, you know, inclusivity issues across the globe as well. There's an aging workforce. You know, a lot of the uh, people that we are losing are actually retiring now, especially after COVID, which has accelerated that. You know, there's there's a high level of poor mental health in the industry as well. So, you know, we need to get better at looking after our people. And a big part of that is educating them in how they can look after themselves, helping people learn how to plan for a long, happy, successful career and equipping them with the well-being tools that they need to do that. So you work alongside big construction companies, I'm guessing. Are they inviting you in to help their staff? Is there a realisation that there is a problem there? There's definitely a realisation, but you know, the industry can be slow to change, as you've already said. And so I think the, the uptake for um, new initiatives in the industry is slow at the moment. So what I do is I go in and I, I do the continuing education piece. So for people that have got their qualifications, you know, they've, they've got their chartership, you know, they might be qualified uh, project managers. And what they're looking for is support in navigating your early career and your mid career as well, support in working your way through, in learning the full project management toolbox as well. You you know, architects and engineers, they're trained for years to do their jobs. But as project managers, we quite often end up falling into the profession. And so having that kind of formal piece of training that supports you as you're going for progression throughout your career is really important. Is there a degree in project management or a BTEC or what, whatever it is that you would take in project <laughs> management? There are. There are various qualifications out there and there are some brilliant options as well. There are also great associations that can, you know, for project managers in the industry as well. The Association for Project Management is one. So there are brilliant forces there, but they tend to be focused on community rather than education. And so I think we need to kind of raise the awareness of the level of education and continued support that people need, because quite frankly, when you join the industry, the skills you need to learn are different from when you're starting to manage people, when you're starting to bring work into a business. What type of skills are you teaching these project managers? I mean, you, you touched on a couple there, you know, human resources to a certain extent. As the industry gets increasingly digitalised, is that also forming part of the syllabus to a certain extent? Yeah, I mean, really, if you can teach people how to be leaders and you can teach people to accept a cycle of continual learning, then you're creating a culture where upskilling is the norm. And so as new and evolving initiatives and digital technologies come out, that our people are actually equipped to be able to to say, yeah, I, I want to become the subject matter expert in that. I've talked about the bosses, whether or not they realise that there's a problem, the companies. But how about individuals themselves? How open are they to reskilling, to upskilling? In my own workplace, I'm quite enthusiastic about learning new things. But often, if it's piled on top of your, your workload already, you might feel a bit, you know, sort of disgruntled about the idea of it. That's the thing is, is it's got to be kind of tackled on a two tier basis. So there's collective responsibility that we all need to take for looking after our people better in the industry. And that can be led at an organisational level. But there is also individual responsibility for making sure we're looking after ourselves and setting ourselves up for long term career success. So actually helping people step outside of the daytime realities of their stressful work and think a bit more strategically, actually project 
manage their own careers is is a really interesting way of helping people change the way they think and also helping them prioritise their own personal growth. Let's talk about this regionally as well, because I imagine there are geographical differences and in attitudes. Are people here in the Middle East positive about your efforts, positive about your ideas? Increasingly so. I think generally, uh, you know, Dubai in particular is incredibly busy. The whole region is, uh, is absolutely thriving in terms of construction. But with that, comes effects on people's you know or stress on overwhelm on other feelings and so it's there and I think the industry is getting better at recognizing that and now it just needs to put more steps into place so that it can it can deal with that. What would you like to see if you had an ideal world you know looking into your crystal ball and you saw this sort of perfect scenario what would you like to see on the ground? I'd love to see people joining the industry 18 or 20 when they've finished their, you know, when they finish their education, coming into the industry and seeing it as a long term career that they can be proud of and equipped with the tools that can keep them balanced, happy and less stressed. Do you know that is such a lovely vision for us to end our podcast series on. Rachel, thank you so much for coming to join us here in the Big Five Global Studio. It's been really fascinating to speak to you. Are you going to be discussing any of this at the Big Five Global? Yes. So on Tuesday, I'm going to be giving a speech about why you are the most important asset in the industry. And by you, I mean every single individual in the industry. Um, It's going to be packed with lots of useful tips about how you can prioritise upskilling and reskilling and also the argument for why you need to prioritise looking after yourself. Rachel Keeble there, founder and lead instructor at Biltwell Project Management. Thank you so much for your time. Thank Thank you. you. And that does bring us to a close of this extraordinary podcast series. I do hope you've enjoyed listening to it as much as we have enjoyed making it. Uh, Huge thanks to the entire team at the Big Five Global event. Huge thanks to Mohamed Suleiman, who has been producing this series. And we do hope at some stage to make another season of this, your Big Five Global podcast. In the meantime, this is me, Georgia Tolley, signing off. And I hope you enjoy the event itself. To register for Big Five Global at the World Trade Center from the 4th to the 7th of December, head to bigfiveglobal.com.